right, let's get into the message. Now, uh, last week I shared that I was really nervous about the message so much that I was having nightmares about talking and preaching on money and generosity. Um, This week, no nightmare, but I have a lot of anxiety because I'm kind of preaching in a format that I've never done before. And so uh, today I'm using PowerPoint. And I don't have a manuscript, and the reason for this is because uh, in preparation for this entire series, I came across a a book by a pastor named J.D. Greer. J.D. Greer, he leads a ministry called Summit, uh, Summit Church out on the East Coast. And when I learned more about his ministry, more about his church, I realized that he's leading one of the most missional churches I've ever heard about, ever observed, ever read about. And um, he wrote a book called Gospel, that's original, uh, and uh, it's titled uh, Recovering the Power That Made Christianity Revolutionary. And one of the chapters committed to really understanding the revolutionary nature, the unique and powerful nature of the church as we wield and, and, and steward over this good news of Jesus Christ was the fact that Christians viewed money, Christians viewed generosity, Christians viewed resources in a radically different way. And, uh, and so uh, this chapter was really formative and challenging for me, and, and I just wanted to share it with you guys. And so uh, I'm putting it out there that like 95% of this is from J.D. Greer and his book, so don't fire me for plagiarism. I'm citing all of it right here for all of our teachers and, and academics. Uh, but I just really appreciated the way that he broke down these different categories, these different biblical principles on money and generosity. And I figured, like, most of y'all aren't going to buy the book and read it, and so I might as well preach it to you guys. Now, uh, last week, we started talking about generosity from grace, and I talked about uh, the fruit of generosity, how it really really does uh, bless our neighbors, how it really does help those who are in need, how it brings glory and thanksgiving to God. And then second, I talked about the challenge of generosity and why it's so difficult and how a lot of times we, we're, we fear that we're going to lose out. We fear that we're not giving enough. We fear that, that we're going to disadvantage our family, our children, or our, our retirement, or whatever it might be. And so there's all of these fears and anxieties that we have when it comes to money, and those things are very natural. Um, and because of time, I didn't finish the sermon. I had a third point, but I was like, hey, we have to end. And, and so this whole week, I felt bad about that, and I was like, okay, the biggest thing about money is not the, the general principle of like, oh, we should give for God's glory. We kind of know that. The, the biggest thing for us, I think, is, as Christians is, like, like, practically thinking through our finances, practically thinking through generosity and giving in our lives and, and weighing out the different things that we, we, we feel, the, the different burdens, the ways that we are stretched financially, and we just need help to uh, navigate our way through that. And so this is where the generosity matrix I found to be super helpful and super biblical. And so we're going to go over a lot of different scripture verses today, uh, but we're also going to be unpacking six core principles. I know when you guys think matrix, you think of like Lawrence Fishburne, Red Pill, Blue Pill, and Neo and his awesome, not good acting. Um, (laughs) But don't think like that, and and I'm going to walk us through it really quickly. And so uh, the generosity matrix. Now, this is what uh, J.D. Kerr says. He says, there seems to be two extremes when it comes to how Christians view their relationship with money and possessions. Okay, two extremes. The first is this, okay? Uh, God wants 10%, okay? And after that, you can do whatever you want with your money. Okay, there's a lot of people who live like this. Maybe, maybe you do it. You're, you're on easy tithe, recurring, 10% each month, right? It, it just goes out and you don't even think about it. But the rest of your money, you treat it like yours. 
right? And you live as if it's completely yours. Now, there's a problem with this extreme. First of all, it has a low view of God, okay? If you think that God only wants 10% and the rest is yours, then you're treating God like a tax collector, right? A very low view of God, okay? The second thing is it, it, it has an incorrect view. It reflects an incorrect heart about us and our money, and we are not only treating God like a tax collector, we're treating God like we're just tipping him, right? Back when I was growing up, tipping was 10%. Anyone remember 10% tipping days, right? And then little by little, it's like 15, and then now 18, and 20, and now if you don't tip 20, they're like, oh, you're a little stingy. And I'm like, I grew up with 10%. Like, anyways, so that's where the tip comes from. Um, uh, but yeah, we do want to bless all of our brothers and sisters in, in food service, um, <laughs> So they, they, they just been pushing that, pushing that in. We're just, that's cool. All right. Anyway, so it, it, the, 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 the impoverished view of this extreme is this idea that, like, this is all my money. I've earned it. I've worked for it. This is our household income. And, yes, we are choosing to give God 10% of our money, but the 90% is ours. But that's not biblical. The truth is, all of it is God's. We are not owners. We are stewards. And what God has done is graciously given us all things for his glory and for our joy, right? For his kingdom and for our delight. But we should not fool ourselves into thinking, this is my money and I'm just giving God a section of it, right? And the rest is for me and our expenses and our pursuits and our pleasures. That's, that's, that's one extreme, okay? A low view of God, incorrect view of ourselves, okay? Here's the second extreme. God's only intention, keyword only, for our money is that we give it away to the poor or for world evangelization, okay? There may be some of you who think like this, okay? Uh, this is kind of like what, what I thought like growing up as a kid. When you were a kid and you gave offering to the church, didn't you just imagine that money kind of like going up to God and then being redistributed to the poor and for his like kingdom cause? And then when you grow up, you realize, wait, they use my money to pay pastors? They use my money to buy microphones and... Like you're like, what? What's going on? And and suddenly you feel a little like, oh, I don't know if I, I want to do that. Yeah, but anyway, so I think a lot of times we have this kind of like romantic but unrealistic view of money that the only thing God wants for you, like the best way for you to use your money is to give it away to poor people. The best way for you to give use your money is to 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 plant churches and support missionaries. Now that is an awesome way to use our money, but that's not the only way. Okay? And so there's some people who think the only intention that God has is for those causes. Now, this is huge. This is a very dangerous, I mean, it's, it's noble, it's better than extreme number one, but it's actually really dangerous, okay? Because what happens is if you operate out of extreme number two, it leads us into constant guilt, constant despair, because we're not giving 100%. To, to the poor. We're not giving 90% to planting churches and missionaries. In fact, it's, it's maybe 2% or 5% or 10% or maybe you're radical and you give 20% and we're like, oh wait, I have house payments and we have, we have education debt and we have to eat and, and, and we have smartphones and, and so we have all of these things and we start feeling guilty that we're not giving more to the poor. And so suddenly we start being like, oh, man, should we just live on bare necessities? Do I really have to eat Korean barbecue? Do I, do I have to eat there? Can't we, shouldn't we just eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and crackers and, 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 and chicken soup? Not, not 
you know, and, and, and just live off of that and just give away everything else. And, and as if that is like a righteous life, as if that's what Jesus would want for us. John Calvin, the great reformer, he has a great quote on this to address this kind of second extreme. Um, this is what he says. Uh, oh, which do you lean towards, right? Um, this is what he says. He says, if a man begins to doubt whether he may use linen for his sheets, shirts, handkerchiefs, and napkins, he will afterward be uncertain also about hemp, hemp being a lesser, cheaper material than linen. For he will turn over in his mind whether he can supper without napkins or go without a handkerchief. If any man should consider daintier food unlawful, in the end, he will not be at peace before God when he eats common food, while it occurs to him that he could sustain his body on even coarser foods. Does that make any sense? And what Calvin is just saying is, like, how much is enough, okay? How, how bare-boned is bare-bone enough, right? And, and when we kind of live on that trajectory, it's, it's confusing. It's difficult. It's guilt-ridden, right? And so what we need is like a liberation from both extremes, this idea that we're just tipping God or God's a tax collector or the only thing God wants from you and your money and the real way to spend your money is to give it to the poor and give it to the church and X, Y, and Z, that there has to be a better way than either of these. Uh, This is what uh, J.D. Greer says um, on the generosity matrix. When it comes to our money, I, uh, he sees six principles the Bible puts forward. Any one of these principles taken alone will lead you out of balance. But holding all six in reverent tension can provide for you a balanced approach to your money that allows you to be freely generous with your money and also enjoy the things that God has put into your life. And I just, I love that picture, okay, guys? That that we are to hold these principles in reverent tension, okay? Uh, God wants for us to experience that tension. Okay, he wants us to think these through, uh, to weigh them out, to struggle with them, to, to pray over them. And I really believe that uh, if we can do this, we will be better stewards over our money. Uh, we will feel less guilt-ridden, we'll be more kingdom-minded, uh, and we'll be more biblical. As we don't just lean into one practice or one philosophy, right? but, but, but a holistic view on, on, on finances. All right, this uh, next here, so here's what the matrix looks like, okay? Uh, this is not really a matrix. It's my best. I know this doesn't look like a matrix. It's the best what I could do with my limited PowerPoint skills. It's more like a cycle, but it, it's not a sequence. It's not supposed to be a step one, step two, step three. It's just the best way I could fit six things on one chart. Um, some people are really stressed out, right? You're like, what is coming up in the other boxes? <laughs> Pastor Mike, couldn't you just show us all six boxes at once, and, and then I'll feel relieved, the tension the tension is intentional. All right. So um, the, first, the first is this, okay? God gives some excess. Uh, God gives excess to some so that they can share with those who have less, okay? So they can share with those who have less. Uh, here's a great scripture verse. Last week, we were preaching out of 2 Corinthians 9, right? But I also told you that 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, they're all this like one narrative unit together, Okay, uh, and this is what Paul writes. This is what Paul says. He says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Now, what is Paul talking about? Okay, uh, once again, the context is this. There's a famine in Palestine, okay? And the church in Jerusalem is experiencing uh, a lot of poverty, a lot of hardship because of this famine. The Christians in Jerusalem were being marginalized. They were being persecuted. And so in order to help relieve the pain, the hardship that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were experiencing. Paul was taking collections. He collected finances uh, from the Philippians, from the Macedonians, right, from the Thessalonians, and now he was writing to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians were a wealthy church. They were a rich church. And he says, you guys right now are in abundance. And he says, it's right. It's biblical. It's God-honoring for those of you who are in abundance to help those who are in need, right? It's biblical, it's fair, it's God-honoring, right? And so he writes in this way. Um, and so the key is this also. It's not about just easing the poor and burdening the wealthy, okay? It's not just, and, and he's really careful to say that. He's not saying just like poor people get a free pass. He's not saying poor people don't have to give at all, okay? Um, uh, all are called to steward. And what we actually learned last week was the Macedonian church were extremely poor. Paul described them as severely afflicted and extremely poor, and yet they considered it a great privilege to give to God. They begged, they pleaded, they said, please let us participate in the care for those who are in need. Please let us donate. It may not be as much as the Philippians. It may not be as much as what the Corinthians can give, but we want to give what we can, okay, according to what we have. And so they participated. So the general principle is laid out for us. There are some who have been blessed by abundance. And in that, for those of us who have, okay, it's fair and biblical to meet and support the needs of others. That's the first one, okay? And now some of y'all are sitting here and you're like, I don't got that abundance, right? I'm more Macedonian than Corinthian. No problem. Grace to all, okay? Grace to all. Here's the second one. Jesus is our model, okay? Jesus is our model. Uh, Jesus' radical generosity towards us is our model and motivation for radical generosity towards others. I'm going to go and say this. This is the most important of the six points, okay? The most important of our six points. This whole series is called Gospel Generosity, okay? And so we want to give, okay? We want to give what we have according to our abilities, but we give because we have already first received, okay? The Macedonians, they had abundance. They had overflow, and it wasn't abundance of wealth. It was abundance of joy, Abundance of grace, abundance of love that was overflowing towards God, that was pouring out onto their neighbors. And, and this is what we want to model and practice uh, here as a church. And so this is the most important one. Paul reminds us this. Uh, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in full glory, majesty, and honor, right? In perfect fellowship and union with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, he condescended down to earth and he took on flesh and he became one of us. He became physically weak. He experienced hunger. He experienced rejection. Who, who in their right mind can reject the King of kings and Lord of lords? And yet we did. 
He was betrayed. He was denied. He experienced poverty. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay down his head. He experienced all of this. Why? So that he could save us. So that he could redeem us. So that he could give his life as a ransom for us. That is the heart of the gospel. And if that doesn't stir us, if that doesn't convict us, if that doesn't overwhelm us and ask, what love is this? Who am I? Who are we to receive this kind of love? Okay? If you don't see the radical love of God, if you don't see the generosity of Jesus Christ in the gospel, man, then, then we're never going to be able to live out generosity towards one another. Okay? We will never be able to do that. As God increases our ability to earn money and gives us greater positions of power, okay, uh, what a gospel-centered person, a Christian, should do is um, we should leverage that power, sorry, typo, and money like Jesus did, not to increase our standard of living, but to increase our standard of giving, okay? Uh, not to increase our standard of living, but increase our standard of giving. Once again, uh, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now, um, the cool thing about the gospel matrix is that in the same way that they are in tension with one another, that you have to, you have to really think your way and pray your way through each of the matrices, uh, there's tension, and, and what that ends up doing is they end up balancing one another out, okay? Uh, that's what tension does, right? If there's no tension and one side pulls, then everything goes onto that end, right? And so you need kind of like pulling strength on, on both ends. And what this does is they're, they're, we need to balance out this idea of like, okay, Jesus was radically generous towards us. I need to be radically generous towards God and to everyone else. Here's the thing. None of us can give as much as Jesus gave. Okay? Uh, and, and that's not necessarily what Jesus is demanding. And that's not the goal. None of our sacrifices can ever be as impactful as Jesus' sacrifice. Why? Because it's perfect Holy blood has infinite value, infinite ability, infinite power to save us while our sacrifices are limited in nature. If you buy a friend a meal out of generosity, they eat it, and, you know, six hours later, it's gone, like literally, right? And so our gifts, our sacrifices, they have a finite temporal nature while Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed for us, it is infinite, in its application, infinite in its power, infinite in its ability to secure us and free us from uh, the wages of sin. So it's important to balance this principle with others and, and not get overly this like, oh, like I have to do exactly what Jesus did because uh, that can lead us to actually radical despair again. That, oh, I'm not enough like Jesus. I'm not giving like Jesus and, 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 and in the same way. So we want to balance these things out. Okay, number three. The Spirit is our guide. The Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit must give us, or must guide us as to which sacrifices to make, okay? Um, we are presented with an endless sea of opportunities to demonstrate radical generosity. We just are, okay? I've shared this before. Uh, we could go overseas on missions, okay? Yeah, God could call you to go be a missionary, Right? or go, go work for a humanitarian organization, anything like that. Or we can support missionaries, and there is an endless array of missional causes or full-time missionaries that we can support. We can adopt international children, or we could foster local children. Both are beautiful. Right? 
We could relocate to poorer neighborhoods and be salt and light. Not gentrification, or too much, but to really care about a neighborhood and realize, okay, maybe I can help and make a difference there. We can be, um, yeah, a, a great Christian witness in a neighborhood and not necessarily have to, you know, yeah. Um, and then finally, we can volunteer at a nonprofit. We can financially support at a charity or a nonprofit. And yet at the same time, those are endless. Those are limitless. Right? And so what do we do? What do we do when we experience so, when we observe so much need and there's so many worthy and noble causes to commit to and give to, and yet we know that our resources are limited? Okay? Uh, I quoted Larry Osborne uh, last week. Sorry about that. Uh, I quoted Larry Osborne last week, and uh, he, sh- he says this. I want to share it again. He just simply says, not everything has my name on it. Okay? I think you need to just let yourself say that to yourself. Right? Not everything has your name on it. Okay? Uh, not every missionary, not every charity, not every even like global catastrophe. Okay? We can't keep up with the number of, you know, typhoons, tsunamis, earthquakes, famines, fires, tornadoes going on in the world, and it breaks our hearts. We should pray over as many of things as we can, but, 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 but not everything has our name on it. And so what do we do? Okay? Uh, we need to guard ourselves first from being numb and callous. Okay? A lot of times if everyone keeps asking, at some point you can get numb and you can get callous, and you say, you know what, I don't want to give to anything. Or to anyone. Uh, when I was in college, I was part of this campus ministry called KCM, Korean American Campus Mission. And their big thing is summer missions. Summer missions. And so I was part of that. Uh, I served. I went out uh, twice as well. And so everyone knows that in the spring, if you're part of KCM, you get these delightful things called support letters. Support letters. And the more friends you have, the more support letters you get. The bigger your campus ministry is, the more support letters you have. And I remember there would be years where I'm getting like 30 to 40 support letters. And after a while, I became, I know, confession time, all right. Um, I became so numb and so callous to summer mission support letters, sometimes I wouldn't even open them. Oh, right? Well, you guys did the same, right? We've all been there. We're like, oh, thank you for the letter, right? But uh, I just want to encourage you, like, we, we have to guard ourselves from being callous to the many needs that we experience, uh, that, that, we, it, that we face in life. Uh, we, what we want to do is be as sensitive as possible to the Spirit. Um, how do we do this? It's, it's, it's prayer, to be honest, guys. How do you soften your heart? Right? How do you minister to a numb and callous heart? You, know, you can't, like, will it. Right? We, we have to pray. We have to pray confessing a numb heart. We have to pray confessing a callous heart. We have to pray asking for the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And it's through prayer you put yourself in this posture of dependence. It's through prayer and stillness before God that you put yourself in a place where you're actually willing to listen and be still before God. And so, yeah, there's no magic way, but I can say the best way for us to minister to a heart that may, become, may have become desensitized to the needs of others, is praying. Praying in the Spirit, praying for the Spirit, right, to convict us and to lead us. And what we want to be is, yeah, not every cause, not every need has our name on it, but when God is leading, when God is convicting, when God is speaking, we want to be the kind of people who will obey, who can discern his voice 
and uh, have the faith to follow. So the Holy Spirit must guide us as to which sacrifices to make, okay? Uh, number five, four, four. Uh, here we go. God delights in our enjoyment of his material gifts and gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now, this one is the one that's like, ooh, really? Okay. Um, but I think this is the, the, the great liberating one as well. Uh, this past week uh, at our men's discipleship, uh, we talked about denying yourself. Okay. What does it mean to deny yourself? Okay. Uh, to deny yourself daily and take up your cross, because we know that that's, that's so crucial to faithful Christian discipleship to deny ourselves and take up our cross. And so we're, we're reading and learning about what does it mean to deny and what does it not mean, okay? At the core, to deny yourself means this, that you cannot save yourself and be that you are not the ultimate authority in your life, that Jesus Christ is the authority in our lives. That's what it means for Jesus to be Lord, okay? So A, you can't save yourself despite your gifts, despite your best efforts, despite your ability, and then B, Jesus wants to lead you. Jesus has authority over your lives. Uh, but then as we continue to talk about denying yourself, we also talked about what it doesn't mean. And one of our readings said, you know, to deny yourself doesn't mean to deny your happiness. And I think a lot of times we think that. To be a Christian, we have to deny our happiness. That we have to deny our pleasure. That we have to deny our enjoyment. And I said, if we live like that, then we're always going to live out of guilt. Okay? We're always going, going to have to divorce ourselves from the pleasure of God and the presence of God when we go to Hawaii for vacation, right? When we step into a barbecue place or step into Ruth's Chris or Mastro's or something like that because it's an anniversary dinner or a birthday dinner or eat something special or you, or you buy something from J. Crew instead of Old Navy or you, you, you know, <laughs> sorry, I, I shouldn't even do that. Um, but, but you guys get that? It's like if we think that God does not want you to be happy, that he doesn't want you to take delight in, in, in even like you know, earthly simple things and he, God doesn't give you those types of gifts, then we're always going to be guilt-ridden and we're always going to feel bad and awkward and we're never going to be able to go on vacation with the blessing of God. We're always going to be kind of like, oh God, don't look at me, don't judge me, but I'm going to go to New York and eat at Momofuku and do all of these things, but God just, it's just a weekend, okay, and, then I'll, and I'll be back, right? We don't want to live that kind of truncated Christian life. We need to understand that God delights in our enjoyment of his material gifts, and he richly gives us all things to enjoy. We see this in both the New and the Old Testament. Okay, Nehemiah, if you know the story of Nehemiah, he was called to lead Israel as a prophet in the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. Israel was in exile. They got to return to the promised land, and the temple and the city was in ruins. So they're rebuilding the wall, and during this time, they rediscover the law. They rediscover the law of God, and they're reading it, and this is what he says. This is what happens in Nehemiah 8. And Nehemiah said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. This is God. Nehemiah as a mouthpiece for God. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. You see, there's some of you who think that, man, you know what holiness is? Fasting and weeping and praying 
and getting on our knees and dressing in sackcloth and just being still before God. That is holy. That's what we should, like, if, if, if God would have us do anything with our lives, we would do that. You know what God says? No. This is a holy day. You guys have returned to the city of God. You guys have rediscovered the law. This is a holy day, and what I want you to do is not mourn, not weep, but I want you to feast. I want you to celebrate, right? Eat the fat portions. Drink the sweet wine, right? And if you're a teetotaler, you can drink the grape juice, right? Or the Martinelli's, right? And, 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 and it just shows us the heart of God. He says, celebrate me. Delight in me. Worship me. Not with water and breadcrumbs, but to enjoy God's faithfulness with this amazing, lavish party. Brothers and sisters, God is not a killjoy. He's not this miser who wants you to never enjoy anything, okay? Um, he is a God of abundance. You know, he's the one who made Hawaii so beautiful, right? He's the one who made that dry-aged steak so delicious, right? I mean, those are, that's all part of his design. And, and how much more joy, how, how, how much li- more liberating is it for us to be able to eat those things to the glory of God? and not like hiding from him as if he can't see us, right? Or just turning our consciences or searing our consciences away from him. And so this goes against that second idea, right? That idea that says God only wants you to spend your money for the poor. Or the best way to spend your money, the only way you should spend your money is for evangelization and churches and and, and, and things like, and missions, okay? Uh, No, Nehemiah 8 shows us that, that, yeah, God is, is holistic, in the way that he wants us to steward over our resources. But I also love the fact that God says, yes, enjoy the fat portions. Enjoy the sweet wine. But be the kind of people who will share that with others. Okay? Do you realize, well, like, we don't have to be the only ones to enjoy good things. We can share those with maybe people who have never experienced that before. People who, in this season and context, don't have the means to experience, buy, buy a meal like that for themselves or whatever it might be. And, and I think that is a great reminder as well, okay? If all you are doing is saying, yeah, the fat portions are mine, right? But you're not doing the second part of saying, hey, how can I give somebody a, maybe a vacation that they never experienced, they couldn't afford for their own, or, or buy somebody a meal or maybe buy someone clothes that, yeah, like uh, I just see them in need or whatever it might be. And just showing that kind of generosity and care and uh, concern, I think that's, that's such a beautiful thing. Um, New Testament, Paul talks about this to Timothy. That's what he says. It's for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, and that means prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Once again, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy, and everything means everything. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I really believe that this might be the most relevant passage for us today as we talk about gospel generosity, as we talk about how should we steward over the things that we have. This really gets to the heart of this issue. The rich in this age, they're not to be prideful. Those who are wealthy, those who are living in abundance right now, you're not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
But at the same time, we don't have to despise or feel guilty about our wealth either. What we need to realize is that it's not ours. It's God's. And God has provided for you those things, your income, your wealth, your inheritance, whatever it might be, all of those things for us to enjoy. But those have all come from the gracious hand of God. Okay. We want to remember that. Paul reminds us also in this passage of what is truly life. And he says, yes, all of your riches, they're for you to enjoy. God's given everything to you, but don't be fooled in thinking that this is what life is all about. He actually says that true life is not about being rich in wealth, but rich in good works. True life and the abundant life is not about just being financially solid and stable. It's about being generous to others. And so I just, I, I just love this passage. It spoke to me. It challenged me. It liberated me, but also soberly reminded me to not place my hope, right? Not to build my foundation, not to place my security and identity in finances. Once again, we want to check this passage or check this principle, okay? Not to say, oh, God blessed me with these riches and abundance and I can enjoy it uh, for myself because you might use this to just justify an indulgent lifestyle. We also want to remember God's given you excess to share with those in need. That your excess should rep, uh, that your giving and stewardship should reflect Jesus Christ and His radical, selfless giving towards us. So once again, live out that holy tension. Uh, number five: trust in God, not in wealth. Okay, trust in God, not in wealth. So we are not to trust in riches and not to define our lives by the abundance of our possessions. You guys see the balance, right? You guys see the tension. God gives it to you for your joy, right? But don't trust in it. Okay, uh, money is the top competitor with God for two things in our lives, okay? Uh, Security and significance. I love that quote, okay? Money is the top competitor in our lives for security and significance. Um, Ecclesiastes 5. If uh, If you guys have ever read Ecclesiastes, beautiful, powerful, so poetic, so poignant for each one of us as we're trying to live biblically wise lives. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes was a man named Solomon. And if you know the Old Testament, the story of Solomon, Solomon was rich, right? He was mighty. He was rolling in it. He had everything and probably too much of everything, too many wives, too much wealth, too much uh, comfort, right? Um, He experienced all of those things, but this is what he writes. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity, okay? Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he's writing about the meaning of life, and he does it in two ways. He writes positively about what real life is, to fear God and obey the commandments, but he also writes negatively. He says these things are wastes. These things are vanity. This is foolishness. And so to love money and be satisfied with money, right, to see wealth and just delight in your own wealth, that is a waste. Why? Because real security, real significance doesn't come from our wealth. You see, um, this principle, it goes directly against our temptation to make an idol of money. Uh, One of my pastor friends, he once said this. He says, money is a great resource, but a terrible God. Okay? I love that view of money. Let's view money as an amazing resource, as a powerful resource, okay? But let's also acknowledge that it is a terrible God. 
It's a terrible master for you and I to serve money, to enslave ourselves to money. It's a terrible lover to always chase it and always pursue it because you'll never have enough. Or when you have it, you might experience a windfall and hardship and you'll lose it and then you'll be devastated. Don't chase money as a master, as a lover. Don't worship money as a God because it will wreck you. You see, money will never give you the kind of security and significance that God is able to give you. What do we mean by security? You see, a lot of times we're afraid of loss. No one wants to suffer. We're afraid of hardship. We all keep talking about like the next like financial downturn, right? We kind of like recently experienced the Great Recession. And, and even the other day, I had a young person be like, oh, you bought recently? I was like, yeah. I bought a little place in Pasadena, and he's like, you know the housing bubble's going to burst again, right? And so there's, all, there's always this fear of, like, loss. I was like, thanks. Thanks for telling me that, right? <laughs> thanks for giving me nightmares, right? And anyways, but, but, but we're afraid of that. We're, we don't want to experience tragedy. We don't want to experience hardship. So what do we do? Like, we better save up. We better save up. We better buy more insurance. And we're going to be thinking that that is going to give us great security. We want to prepare ourselves for that rainy day. But money will not provide the kind of eternal security that we need. What do we mean by significance? Right? We all want to be told that we've made something of ourselves. You all want to be told that you matter. You want to experience approval that you are successful in your career and in your lives, and the metric of success in our culture is money. It's about how much money you have in your bank account. What is your estate worth, right? Or it's who has the best stuff? What are you driving? Where are you living? What are you wearing? Or now, who are you wearing, right? That that is the metric of significance. But Solomon says those things are vanity. Those things are vanity. Jesus is going to say the same thing. Jesus has this parable of the rich man and his barns. And uh, I'm not going to read all of it, uh, but he's telling the stories about this rich man because um, these two brothers, they they came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. Okay, Because back in the day, the first son got the bulk, the lion's share of the inheritance. The second son got next to nothing. So he's like, tell my brother to share, right? And Jesus says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for life, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Okay, it's not about getting the most stuff to make yourself, to make your life good, to give you significance, right? And the parable goes like this, the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Tell yourself you've earned it. Tell yourself you've done well. Tell yourself you have worked hard, 65, time to cruise and enjoy 20, 25 years of awesome, sweet retirement. But God said to him, for fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, is not rich, and is not rich towards God. Okay. Think about that reality. You want eternal security? It's not in this world. 
I mean, think about the, the retirement plans, the 401ks, the money that we're saving, the, the, the dreams that we have. Once, once our kids go off and, and they graduate from school and get married and they're no longer financial dependents and, 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 and I'll be done with my job and, and I'll just be able to retire in Palm Springs and play golf every day and have my own, that, that's my dream, sorry about that. And just imagine working towards that and 65 comes around and and that very night, our lives are demanded of us. God says, your time is done. Come home. That's, that's the ultimate question, brothers and sisters. Death is the great equalizer of all men. We all must give an account before God. Death comes to us all, and the question is this. When death, not if, when death comes to us, where will you have laid up your treasure? Is it in wealth and possessions? Because those things will not help you in heaven. They will not help you in hell. But those are one of two, those are the only two destinations that we have. Those are the eternal stories that each one of us will experience. It's either heaven with Christ or hell in judgment. Which is it? We are called to lay up our treasures in heaven and be rich towards God. Only Jesus Christ in the gospel can give us the eternal security that each and every one of us desperately needs. Only God himself, through his approval, through his presence, through his covenant relationship, can give us the significance that we need. Here's the last point. Um, the matrix is complete, right? Wealth building is biblical. Wealth building is biblical, and this is really, really important, guys. Young people, start saving your money. Learn what compound, compound interest is, right? It's a powerful thing, okay? Compound interest. All right, wealth building is wise. Consider these words from the wisdom of Proverbs, okay? In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. The crown of the wise is their wealth, okay? Wise people know how to steward over their wealth. Wise people know how to grow their wealth, okay? Foolish people just talk about it, okay? Foolish people just talk about it. Uh, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Imagine that, okay? That's like opposite of the immigrant thing. Like for us, if you're second generation and you're a grown adult and you have a family, you're like, oh my gosh, I am my, my, my parents' retirement plan. So they've done the opposite for us. But, but man, uh, I think for us, we are thinking about our children, our ch children's children, and, and a good man leaves an inheritance. What does that mean? It means that we have to steward over our wealth wisely and not spend it all on ourselves, but think about what are you leaving behind for your children? What are you leaving behind for your children's children? There's wisdom in that, okay? Wealth building is wise. And finally, uh, wealth gain hastily will dwindle, okay? Bitcoin, Bitcoin, right? Uh, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it, right? Will increase it. Uh, and so that's very, very important. Um, let me see, where was I there? Yeah, if you read through the Proverbs, uh, you'll see a truly balanced view on wealth. On one level, uh, we're reminded not to trust in wealth and not earthly riches. But on the other level, we're, we're reminded that, that wealth is a blessing and that we are instructed wisely on how to steward over those things. So what does this mean for us? Uh, it means, yes, it's okay to hold on to your 401k. Yes, it's good to make good investments. And yes, we should buy insurance and protect our families and protect our assets. Uh, but make sure that you hold this principle in balance with the other ones, especially the previous one. Literally, don't buy into the lie that wealth means security for you. 
Don't buy into the lie that, yes, wealth building is good, but don't buy into the lie that wealth means security for your children. You know what the greatest security is for your children? It's the same as the one for you, Jesus, right? What's the greatest significant marker for your children? It's not just, oh, you got into Harvard or you got into USC because those two are equivalent. It's, 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 it's the approval of God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. The same thing you and I need for ourselves is what your children need. And so we need to understand those things. Um, I just want to share a really cool story, and, and I'm going to go in line. I need to end soon. But um, I, uh, when I was in seminary, I, I lived in the, the back kind of like wing of a professor at, at Biola University, Biola University. And so uh, he was there, and um, I don't want to drop his name. I'll, I'll try not to drop his name. He's a really great guy, really godly guy. And, and we would talk because he knew I was a seminary student uh, at Talbot. And we would talk a lot about church and ministry, and, and he was a really sharp guy. And, uh, you know, we got closer together, so, like, the topic of money came up. And uh, he actually shared that over the years, he had assumed over a million dollars of savings, I was like, you're, guys, teachers and professors, like Christian school professors, they do not make that much money. And so he and his wife, they were both, you know, like faithful, they're dual income, so that's really powerful as well. And, and, and they had just saved up and made wise investments. They, had, they saved up over a million dollars of money in the bank. But he said, you know what happened? He met this, he experienced this church, he encountered this church in Orange County. And, and he sat through a service and he, he was just so moved. And so convicted because this church was practicing real forgiveness, real reconciliation, real Jesus honoring Jesus, reflecting kind of grace towards one another. Because what had happened was one of their pastors had fallen into sexual sin. And rather than just cast him out and sweep him under the rug, this, this church was walking with him and publicly restoring him and acknowledging his sin but he confessed it, and they're saying, we are still your family here. We know none of us are perfect. And so they weren't casting stones. And instead, they were showing embrace. And he was at that service, and he was so moved. And this was a small you know, church plant. He said, I'm going to give to this church. I'm going to invest in this church. I'm going to sow seeds into this church. He wrote a check for $250,000 to support that church. They later on became a really vibrant, really powerful dynamic church in Orange County. I don't want to drop names or anything. But... That's an amazing example of the power of wealth building and the beauty of generosity, okay? Gospel-centered, Jesus-honoring generosity. And I was just floored because I'm this like 27-year-old seminary student making like $1,000 a month at my church and this idea that like this man could uh, uh, like save up a million dollars and then just boom, one quarter of it for the church and give it with joy, and, not, and this wasn't an investment. He's not like an earthly investment where he wants like, you know, 3% or 8% back. He's just like, this is for you. This is for the church. This is for God's kingdom. This is for God's glory. But how did he get there? He got there by saving his money over the years. It's the power of compound interest and good investment. So brothers and sisters, I think it's important that we should understand that, yes, building wealth is good. We should do it over time, over the story of our lives, but we shouldn't just build wealth for our own estates. Perhaps God will allow you to experience great abundance. And I hope in the later years of your life, you would ask, well, how do I want to spend this? How do I want to use this? Are you going to give it all to your children, right? Or is God going to lead you? Is the Holy Spirit going to convict you uh, to, yeah, give it in a different manner? Here's the matrix again. 
God gives some excess. Jesus is our model. The Spirit is our God. God delights in our joy. Trust God, not wealth. Wealth building is biblical. Uh, which of these are areas where you're lacking? Which of these are areas where, where you need to grow? Are any of these a weakness for you in your life? My encouragement is to, to pray through these things, to really think through these things and just hold them in holy tension. Allow them to balance one another out. Allow them to, to be like talking points with you and your spouse as you're thinking about, hey, what should we do with our money? I got a raise. I got, a, uh, yeah, I got a, a offered a different position or whatever it might be. And, and not just saying, hey, let's spend it more on ourselves. Let's just upgrade our lives. But let's really like weigh through this matrix. My wife and I, we're, we're definitely going to try and, and walk through this. And I encourage you to do as well. Do that as well. All right. Um, oh. We're supposed to take communion together. Um, let's go ahead and do that. Let's go ahead and lean into that. Let me pray for us, and we'll take communion, and uh, I won't be too long on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, you've given us so much. You have made us rich and abundant in our lives. Lord, would you make us first a changed people, would you open up our hearts and our lives that we might receive your grace and your generosity? Help us to receive the wealth that truly flows from the cross of Christ. And as you fill our hearts, as you give us an abundance of joy and love, may that overflow onto our neighbors, onto those who are less fortunate, whether it's through financial resources, whether it's through our prayers, whether it's through our time and service, different expressions of ministry. May we be generous to others because you have first been generous to us. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.